Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. This is group discussion number two. And there were some great questions and great comments from you guys. So I will have more than enough to fill 20 minutes uh, with. And I, in fact, I've got my stopwatch going to make sure I don't go beyond 20 minutes. So here we go. First comment or question that someone said was uh, that, <clears throat> thank you for the lessons. It makes sense to view salvation in heaven as how we live now. Most Christians uh, try to live a life that pleases God, but possibly without the connection of understanding that the kingdom of heaven is how we here uh, on earth, how we live maybe here on earth. So a thought question I have is about your comment about where in the Bible it mentions very few people that go to heaven in a disembodied state. So this person is saying, if heaven is going to a disembodied state, if it's mentioned a few times, can't that be true? I want to believe that our souls go straight to heaven and be with Jesus. <clears throat> so totally understandable. And I want to believe that as well. So I, I feel the same way about that. I think I'm going to just recognize a few verses, talk about those, and maybe just kind of process big picture what, what I'm trying to get at here. So I think there's four or five verses that are pretty well known that people connect with this idea that we go to be with Jesus in heaven. And it may well be absolutely right. So I'm going to throw out some ideas here, and I'm, I'm definitely ready to be challenged um, about them as well. So here we go. John 14, chapter 14, verse 2. We hear Jesus say, in my father's house are many rooms. The King James says many mansions, but uh, it's probably better translated rooms. And it's probably a metaphor for the actual temple building. Jesus says my father's house in referring to the temple. And it, it, there's many rooms there. And in the context, he's talking to the disciples. And I think he's giving them encouragement because he's saying, I'm going to be leaving. Um, but you guys are going to be coming back. You, you guys will be joining me at a future time because there's plenty of room. So it, it is possible that Jesus is here communicating to his disciples. I'll see you guys soon. You're going to be with me. So, but I don't know if that's necessarily a universal declaration to all believers all time. It might just be Jesus trying to comfort the, the disciples. So there could be something there in that. Luke 24, uh, Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. So this, this word paradise is a way to talk about the underworld. Um, that, that's how they viewed things in the first century. So I'm, I'm interested in that. And so is Jesus telling the thief on the cross, you're going to be with me in heaven? I know that's the default automatic belief, but Jesus resurrects three days later, and then he goes 
to this heavenly reality, right? Where he is to, to remain on his throne. And so I'm, I'm hesitant to, to think that this is a reference to Jesus going to heaven. Uh, so we're left with a couple passages in Corinthians and Philippians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, knowing that he who raised Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And then it'll get into chapter 5 when he says that um, that we will uh, be, sorry, I'm just going to look it up. So 2 Corinthians 5. Later, he's going to say, uh, we are at home in the body. That means we are away from the Lord. And um, I'm not sure Paul's talking about going to heaven here. So Jesus's resurrection was bodily. And yes, he went to heaven. But I think that when Paul talks about our resurrection, it's bodily. And when Jesus returns to earth is when we're going to receive that resurrection body. So Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, that's, that's present there. So I wonder if being with Jesus connects with when Jesus returns there for Paul. So I don't know if that's a passage that is clearly talking about when we die right now, we are going to be with Jesus. And then um, we have Philippians 1. To be absent from the body is to, to be with the... That's not the correct verse. It's Paul saying that he would... <clears throat> if to die is for him a good thing because he would... Um, He's hard-pressed between the two. His desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. So could that be Paul referencing this idea of going to, to be in this heavenly reality? Could be. It could be. And then we have 1 Thessalonians 4, when Paul says that Jesus will bring back to earth those who have fallen asleep there. So I, I have this reference of those who have fallen asleep. Does that mean that they had been with Jesus? Maybe. Maybe it does mean that. Um, it definitely means they will be with Jesus when he returns. I find that interesting. They're concerned, the Thessalonians, with those who have died. They have a concern. Wait a minute, because they're saying, when Jesus returns, what about those who have died? And Paul is reassuring them. And notice the emphasis will be when Jesus returns here. So... Uh, there's a lot here, guys, and, and I've only taken a few minutes on it. But I want to just recognize, one, God is communicating to people where they're at in their worldview. And so there's some fogginess here with all of that. And maybe that's OK for us. So the the Old Testament ideas of the afterlife were kind of non-existent. And then some kind of afterlife idea seemed to show up in, in between the Old and New Testament and in the New Testament, I've got ideas of the afterlife connected with Greek mythological words. Like the words for hell in the Bible are Tartarus and Hades. And the other one is Gehenna, which has to do with a valley. It's just the Hebrew word Gehenam. So I'm just trying to say that God's communicating to people where they're at about these things. Um, there is clear assurance of being with Christ forever. And um, as to how much of that is connected to 
those who have died and are with Jesus now, um, I very much want to, to believe in that too. And it may well be referenced in these New Testament passages, but it's clearly not the emphasis. They're all waiting and thinking about what it means when Jesus returns here and how he will bring those loved ones with him. And so our security and their security are firm and rooted in Christ. And that's the hope and the promise that we have uh, in that. So those are some ideas that I want to say about that. I got to move on. Another person, uh, two other uh, comments or questions were connected to this idea of heaven. One said heaven is a being in the presence of God for eternity once we've left our physical bodies. Having said that, since our world is filled with trouble and suffering, sometimes maybe we focus too much on that aspect and not enough on our time on earth. So maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like the purpose of this passage was to get us to focus on living for God and rejoicing in his kingdom here on earth and doing everything we can to further that with the time that we have. So I want to talk about that. And then another person said, sometimes I wonder if the lack of talk about what happens after we die in the Bible is because of the human tendency to focus on that rather than what's in front of us. <coughs> Sorry. I can't imagine Christians back then were any more or less focused on the afterlife than we are today. Paul's lamenting that he'd rather go home and be with Jesus. We've talked about that a little bit, but he still has things here to do. So what's your take on that? That the Bible talks less about an afterlife, so Christians will focus on bringing the kingdom of God here on earth. So I want to talk about the idea of heaven and the idea of kingdom and actually how those two mush together. So what is heaven? Is heaven leaving our physical bodies forever? I know this is a pretty common view Christians have today, but I would like to look at this from a different angle if possible. So let's just think through a couple ideas. One, Jesus had a resurrected body and it was physical and he ate with people and they touched, touched him, right? Two, Jesus did ascend to a heavenly reality. I'm just trying to be careful here with words. And uh, it was in his glorified physical body. Okay, so he kept that with him. Three, Jesus is returning to earth and it will be with his glorified physical body. So those are three things I think that are pretty clear mentioned in the New Testament in various ways. Four, here's the idea. The New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says what has happened to Jesus in the middle of this age is what's going to happen to us at the end of the age, that we're getting a resurrected physical body then. So there's a weirdness maybe here because Jesus has his resurrected physical body. He is the firstborn of new creation, but we will be getting ours when Jesus returns. So check out 1 Corinthians 15 on that. In terms of the kingdom, what is, what is the kingdom? You know, it's interesting. Matthew speaks of the kingdom of heaven and Mark speaks of the kingdom of God, but both of them recognize this is what Jesus announced. He said the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has arrived and he calls people to repent. So Jesus's teaching ministry was actually all about this kingdom that had arrived on earth, but it wasn't what people were, were expecting. You know, it's, it's a mustard seed that grows small, but it becomes huge. 
it was something that people would sell all their land for and they would buy this field because there's a pearl in there, right? It's, it's this reality of one going after the lost sheep when the 99er are there. So the kingdom, it was about giving your allegiance to the king, giving your allegiance to Jesus. So I think right after that claim in Mark, we, we see what tells me this is what it looks like when God's kingdom arrives. Jesus is, just check out Mark 1. He is healing. He is casting out demons. And he's calling people to repent. And that word repent is a call to allegiance, to give your allegiance to the king who has arrived. And then I'll just say this. Every gospel writer recognizes that Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is quoted at the beginning of every gospel. So they see that Jesus arriving was fulfilling what Isaiah was talking about. And Isaiah is talking about the arrival of God's kingdom. So I would encourage you to check out Isaiah 40, actually 40 through 55, something like that. And then, then reflect on the Gospels. So there might be some cool stuff that you unpack there. If I bring those two ideas together, then I, I'd like to suggest that the authors of the New Testament are not thinking that we're going to be leaving the earth forever. But because of Jesus's arrival on earth and the way he talked about the kingdom, that he had brought the kingdom of heaven to earth and that when he returned, it would literally finally be heaven on earth once and for all, which is what God had always intended. And so in terms of the judgment passages here, maybe we could think of a harmony in all of this, that there is, yes, salvation by faith, but these judgment passages function to stir us to good deeds and, and move us and motivate us because our king is returning and there will be a judgment. There will be an accounting for. So Peter is saying, be who God has called you to be. Be the humans that everyone will be when Jesus returns. So N.T. Wright talks of it like this. Be the future living people in the present. Or he calls it, be Easter people or resurrection people. So we, we are motivated by the fact that God will return and then recognize our deeds are showing who we are, who we belong to, who our allegiance is in. Maybe this is a way similar to when Paul says, test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Maybe it's kind of the same language. So, uh, and there is an element of rewards going on. I don't, I don't have time to go down that road, but I, I think Paul might refer to that in, I think it's Second Corinthians. It might be First Corinthians, but maybe, maybe that's something helpful to think about. I know I'm zipping through these, but you guys really asked some great questions, and I want to connect with all of them in some way. So, one person said the kingdom of God mentality versus heaven is our destination mentality brought to mind this phrase, so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. <laughs> so I like, I like that. Um, and I think that's right. There's some kind of an idea. It's not about a location th where we're going, but it's about a calling. 
that we have. So another person reflected on 1 Peter 1 and said that um, Christ is encouraging and motivating us. Christ redeems us. And then lives are changed by and through his word. But the question was, how can we be holy when we fall short of the glory of God? What is the standard of holiness? How does one be holy? So I think that's a great question. Peter is quoting Leviticus 19 when God actually claims Israel is holy because he had set them apart. So the, the translation there, guys, we got to be careful with. It's not a command for Israel. It's a declaration. He's saying, I've set you apart, so you are holy. And then if you think about it, the rest of the Old Testament law code is a, a response that they are to make because of that truth. They are to be who they are. And I think Peter is picking up on that when he's saying, God has set you apart as holy, so now your conduct should follow. That's the word he uses. So we are holy because God has made us that. Yes, we fall short, but through Christ, God can announce that we are set apart, holy, but we can make our conduct holy. That's something that we can decide to do, right? So hopefully that helps answer that question. One more. Last person says, I appreciate your sentence diagram with Peter's key challenges to believers and the supporting sentences. I'm challenged to have a balance of both fear of and friendship with the Lord because I tend to default to the friendship. That last command to love each other earnestly from a pure heart, the most difficult and built upon the three commands above it. To me, the connections are imperative. Love, earnestly, I need to have that hope, fear, and holiness. The brotherly love and love each other earnestly is believers to believers. Yes. And subsequently to those outside of God's family, question mark. One affects the other, question mark. Is there a priority? So I think, yes, I think Peter is talking believer to believer. He is going to be talking about the family, those, those outside the people of God later. And yes, he would affirm love your neighbor, whoever that might be, I'm sure. But I'm going to hold off on a commentary on how our actions relate to those outside of the kingdom. Peter's actually going to talk about that a good amount here. He's called them exiles. So how their lives function as a witness and testimony of the gospel to those outside the world is a big deal in 1 Peter. So we will unpack that more later. Um, I have one minute left. And I'm shocked by that. So I'm just going to say this. One, thank you for these questions, these comments. I love it. Um, I appreciate the thoughts, the ideas. I hope I'm throwing out some helpful things for you to chew on. My continual challenge for you and for myself is that we will continue to have this posture that says, I'm ready to be challenged by new ideas. I want to think through the way I think about things here, me personally, guys, and be challenged by things you guys say. And I want to learn and I want to grow. And so my, my challenge and my encouragement for you guys is, is uh, to have that same kind of idea because our 
Our faith, I'm going to quote a guy by the name of Peter Enns, our faith is not rooted in the certainty of our beliefs, right? Our faith is rooted in Jesus. So I hold on to Jesus, uh, but I don't hold on to the certainty of my ideas because those are my ideas. I want to hold on to Jesus. So hopefully that makes sense. If not, email me or talk to me in the hall. Thanks, guys. See ya.